Open your Bibles, if you will, to uh, the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 9, and you follow in your copies as, as I read. We'll begin at verse 28 of Luke 9. Here we go. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, oh, that endures forever. Guys, last week we were talking about the role that miracles played in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I told you last week that the, um, the miracle that we looked at in John 6 about the feeding of the 5,000 was the, was the only miracle in the entire New Testament that, that occurred, that it was reported in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, this event, which is known as the Transfiguration, is recorded by all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Now, gang, uh, just for any of those of you who might be interested in this, the, uh, the synoptic gospels, if you've ever heard that term, the synoptics are just three of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The term synoptic means to see with or to see like. And John, the gospel of John is so different from the other three that he is not considered a synoptic gospel. His is not considered a synoptic gospel. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this event, the transfiguration, appears in all three of them. It was really hard uh, trying to pick out which one I would use. Would I use Matthew's account or Mark's account or Luke's account? Because they all give you a little bit of turn and a little uh, detail here and there that's different from the others. But I, I've chosen, as you can tell, um, Luke's account. Now, the, the uniqueness of this event is not to be found in the fact that it um, it is recorded by three gospel writers. There's a handful of events that make their way into all three of the synoptics. The uniqueness of the event has to do with what you see in here uh, that surrounds the event. The sequence of things that unfold around the event. And let me show you what I mean. Now, guys, this is kind of hard to do, so you might have to, um, if you want to follow it, uh, you might just want to sit there and try to get some of this. But... Um, the event itself, known as the Transfiguration, actually begins 
in verse 18 of chapter 9 in Luke. That's the first component part of the sequence. And the sequence begins with Jesus saying, fellas, who do, who do the crowds say that I am? And that's when Peter says, thou art the Christ of the That's where the, 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 um, the sequence begins with that. And then right after that, Jesus, uh, in verse 21 and 22, Jesus speaks of his death for the first time. Right after that, we get this stirring call to discipleship, to take up your cross and follow me. And then after that comes the transfiguration. And then after that comes, they're coming down from the mountain, there's the healing of the um, of the boy with an unclean spirit. And then after that, uh, Jesus mentions again, for the second time, his death and resurrection. Gang, that is a sequence of six things. And the sequence is exactly the same in Mark and exactly the same in Matthew. You don't know how rare that is. In fact, I don't know of another place where all three of the authors record a sequence of events in the exact same order. Starts with this question of, gentlemen, who do the crowd say that I am? And then it goes to Jesus' announcing of his death and resurrection for the first time. And then it moves from there to the um, the call to the disciples to take up their cross and follow me. And then the transfiguration. And then the healing of the young boy. And then the repetition of the second time of his death and resurrection. That happens in the same sequential order uh, in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. Okay, Dr. Young, um, now that you have tried to wow us with Bible trivia, what's the point? Well, guys, the point is really not my point. It's a point that they're trying to make. All three of these authors are trying to make a point, and it's an important one. They're, they're trying to tell you something. Um... And, and, and what I want to suggest, and then I'll try to prove it, here's the point they're trying to make with you. That the transfiguration, this event that I read to you, is pivotal. And we'll see why in a minute. It's, it's central to the telling of the story of the life of Jesus Christ. All three gospel writers would have you to know that this event is, is, is a pivotal point In the whole three-year ministry of Jesus Christ, there is something going on here that may not meet the eye that is absolutely central to the telling of the story about the life of Jesus Christ. And it's central, it's pivotal for a couple of reasons. Let me show you that. The reason, or the the two things that I want to suggest as to why it's pivotal is this. Number one, from here on, from this event onward, everything points to Calvary. That is, the, the, the cross looms on the horizon. Guys, it's hard to say at what point in those three years this occurred. But I can show you this. If you're in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, look at verse 51. This is right after the event, and we're told in verse 51, 
When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He says it in verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. You remember those, that statement? Uh, another one of the gospel writers makes it. He sets his face as flint to go to Jerusalem. After this, Jesus turns a corner and he heads to Jerusalem in a way that you haven't seen him prior to this moment. In fact, guys, this is the first time in this setting, the first time that he mentions his death and resurrection. I want to suggest to you it's somewhere, I'm guessing, but it's somewhere in the last six months of those three years. But he has been performing a ministry and he comes to a point, he does something that is pivotal to the understanding of this message about Jesus Christ. And then he turns the corner and heads to Jerusalem with a face set like flint. That's why it's pivotal. But there's another reason that I, I want to suggest to you that it's pivotal. Um... Go back with me to the sequence that I suggested to you begins in verse 18. The sequence begins with this. Jesus goes to the the disciples and he says, Fellas, who do the crowds say that I am? And some of them in the, in the band of 12 say, well, you know, some people say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others say you're a prophet risen from the dead, you know, who knows? And, and at that moment, Peter steps forward and says, oh, Jesus changes the question. He looks at Peter and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps forward and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, After that reply, Jesus throws a monkey wrench into the whole thing by saying in verses 21 and 22, and you know I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. That's the first time he said that. Again, stay with me. Peter has just stepped forward and says, well, (laughs) you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' reply is, yes, and I'm going to (laughs) die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And for those that band of 12, there is a major piece of confusion that sets in. Wait a minute. Didn't I just say that you're the Christ, the son of the living God? Yeah, you did. Well, wasn't that the right answer? Yes, it is. But then why are you talking about dying? Messiahs dying disconnect. Messiahs don't die. The one that we've been looking for for the centuries, he's not one that's going to die. He's going to lead Israel to her greatest geopolitical triumph. Messiahs just don't die. What are you talking about? Did Messiahs die? No, it would stop all. And by the way, in, in Mark's account of this event, this is when Peter takes him aside, you remember, and says, stop that. Stop that talk about dying. And you remember Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. 
You know, um, Peter says, thou art the Christ and the Son of the living God. Jesus says, I'm dying. And he says, oh, no, you're not. Gang, then comes the event known as the transfiguration. Do you get it? Folks, there is something about this event that is a that is a major piece of clarification for everybody. This event known as the transfiguration is a return to the main theme. It is a, oh, I see that clarification is needed. Okay, let me give you some. You're confused, are you? Okay, then let's, let's do this. Um, there is a, um, um, a, a, a disconnect in uh, what Peter said and what I said. All right, let me see if I can straighten this out for you. And how does he straighten it out? Through this event known as the transfiguration. Jesus has arrived at a moment in his three-year ministry where he sees the need to dispel the confusion that exists about around him. Um, there is a there is a need to draw back the curtains and let people see some things that they haven't they haven't seen before, and to get some things straight that they haven't yet gotten straight. And thus, we come to an event known as the Transfiguration. At, 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 its, at its bottom, at its lowest common denominator, the Transfiguration is a major piece, an epic moment of clarification. It clarifies two things. Who he is and what he came to do. And by the way, (laughs) those are the two biggest pieces of confusion, are they not? Who is he? And what's he talking about this dying in Jerusalem stuff? So in light of the confusion that exists in the minds of these guys, this event takes place. And in this event, guys, Jesus draws back the curtains for Peter, James, and John and allows them to see some things and hear some things that will eliminate at least, not all, but hopefully some of the confusion that surrounds this this person, Jesus Christ. Now, let me show you. By the way, that's why this is central. That's why the three authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put it in the place that they put it. That's why the sequence is all the same for all three of them. Because there is a sense, guys, at which, in terms of the three-year ministry of Jesus Christ, the center point is right here. The transfiguration. 
you don't understand this. And you're going to miss a lot. Because there's two things that are under review. Number one, who is he? Number two, what did he come to do? Now, let me show you that. Two, two, um, two features, two parts, two halves of this event that I want you to see. First of all, uh, clarification over his identity and then clarification over his mission. First of all, uh, as to his identity, as to clarifying his identity, two things happen. First of one is audible, one is visible. The audible one is pretty easy. It's found in verse 35, and um, it, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. This heavenly audible voice makes a declaration as to who he is, as if that voice is saying, Hey, you bimbos, stop all the stuttering. This is my son, my chosen one. Would you listen to him? Ten little English words, only nine in the Greek. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Now, that's the audible part of trying to clarify his identity. But there's a, there's a visual part of clarifying the, his, his identity. And guys, you gotta see this. Look at verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. Interestingly, Luke doesn't use this word, but Matthew and Mark both do. In fact, I want to read you um, Mark's account. Listen to what Mark says. Um, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew says much the same thing. He also uses the same word, transfigured. That's how you get the name of this thing. But it is a Greek word, metamorpho. Ring a bell? We get our English word metamorphosis, of course, from it. Jesus is transformed. Now, gang, there's something that you've got to see about this. I want you to notice something. This... This effulgent whiteness that is taking place here, this glory does not come down. It comes out. This light that is glowing here was not a reflected light. It comes from within. Jesus is the source of this light. The glory originates, it emanates from within him. And for 33 years, his identity had been veiled, but not here. He allows people to see what's really true about his identity. Gang, when you get to heaven, the Jesus that you're going to see is going to look a whole lot more like this than the pictures that you've seen in the Christian bookstore. Those pictures that you see in the Christian bookstore, those are pictures of his identity veiled. But not here. The veil is removed. Heretofore, everything had been cloaked and muffled and disguised. But on this occasion, all the mystery is gone by a voice 
and a visage. If you want to know what this scene is, it is an event where deity is on display. Gang, do you remember from your Sunday school lessons uh, when Moses, right after the golden calf, um, Moses is saying to God, show me thy glory. Well, he doesn't get to see it then. But he gets to see it now. Um, What they are seeing is the supernatural from top to bottom. This is no John the Baptist. This is no Elijah. This is no prophet that rose from the dead. This is God. And everything that you're looking at, Peter, James, and John, is something that originates from inside. This is not a reflected glory that you're looking at. You're looking at the source of glory. I am He. So stop all this banter among yourselves about Elijah and, 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 and John the Baptist. No. No, that's not who I am. I'm... I want to show you that the one that you're confused about is God. The other part of this thing that I want you to see, guys, is clarification over his mission. That is what he came to do. And to do that, I want you to notice two words in the text. In this conversation in verse 30, and behold, two men were talking, 31 actually, uh, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his Departure. Now that is a most interesting Greek word. The Greek word is exodos. Ring a bell? Exodus. Exodos. Um, you know, what, what, what Moses must have been thinking when he heard the word exodos. Gang, the focus of this conversation is not on his sufferings. That's not what this conversation is about. The focus of the conversation is about the exodus, this departure, this deliverance that was about to be accomplished. Not some temporary one, not some exodus from Egypt, no, 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 but an exodus, a, a, a deliverance, something that's far more permanent, something that's far more spiritual. Guys, The exodus of the Old Testament is simply a type. It's just a picture of the exodus, the deliverance that Jesus Christ would accomplish. Gang, don't you love that word? Deliverance? Don't you love it? I'm delivered. You know, all of those addictions and all of those tyrannies that have been binding me. I'm delivered. No more bondage for this guy. The other word that I want you to look at is the word accomplished. The Greek word is plerao. Actually, it's an infinitive, but it's, it's a word that the noun form means fullness. 
He's talking about his departure that is going to be accomplished. The death of Jesus Christ was not something he would just have to accept because the people rejected him. No, no, ladies and gentlemen. That death was a project. It was a divine, designed, voluntary plan that he would accomplish. Not endure. He would accomplish. This is this conversation is about a victory, not a defeat. Nobody's feeling sorry for Jesus in this conversation. Nobody's up on that mountain crying about what Jesus is going to have to endure. Yes, is it awful? Sure it is. But they were worshiping the one who would accomplish their exodus. Their salvation. Their, their deliverance. Gang, Moses and Elijah needs a savior just as badly as Peter, James, and John. Moses and Elijah need a savior just as badly as I do. The cross was no tragedy. Tragedy implies that there's something unforeseeable or uncontrollable. The cross was at the center of a plan. And it was a plan of deliverance. Deliverance. A deliverance for his people. Gang, all I'm saying is that this event known as the Transfiguration is designed for these guys and for us to get very certain in our minds who he is and what he came to do. (laughs) Now, one more thing about this text, this event, and I'm done. We're told that, um, that after it was over, they didn't tell anybody. But Mark tells us why they didn't tell anybody. Let me read you this. This is out of Mark's account. He says, And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning (laughs) questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. You know, guys, uh, they were taken up there to to get clarification. And... um, it didn't accomplish everything that it was supposed to in terms of clarifying who he was and what he came to do. They're coming down and they don't tell anybody and they don't tell anybody because they don't understand it. And they're discussing what, 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 what is, what is the meaning of this rising from the dead? Well, what do you think it meant? <laughs> Dodo? You know, even while he's up there, Peter is blundering through this whole event. He makes this stupid suggestion that tents be built for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses as if the three of them were on some kind of equal footing. And he's immediately rebuked by the voice from heaven. No, 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 no. Don't you make three tents because this is my son. Those two aren't. How how unbelievably confused. This poor guy Peter is, not to mention James and John. But for a minute, I'd just like to defend them. And let me let me explain. Peter is the one that stepped forward in verse 22 uh, and said, Thou art the Christ, verse 20. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's, he's the one who said that. 
He seems to know things intellectually, but not existentially. Peter could give you the right answers on the pop quiz, like so many of us. But the truth of it did not seem to course through the veins of his soul, like so many of us. You know, guys, I have a friend who is an oncologist. For those of you who don't know, that means he's a cancer doctor. And on occasion, he and I have chatted over smoking, smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and, um, and, of course, this friend of mine preaches again and again and again about smoking cigarettes and how stupid it is. Don't smoke cigarettes. Don't you know that it will cause lung cancer? And he says, um, people still smoke. And he says, on occasion, I haven't done this very often, but on occasion, there will be people in my clinic um, the people in my clinic, I will take them and I will, um, I will show them a patient of mine who's got lung cancer. And he said, it seems like at that moment, their understanding moves from the intellectual to the existential. At that moment, they get it. Gang, Why do people still smoke when right there on the pack of the cigarettes is a notice from the Surgeon General saying, if you smoke these things, you're going to get lung cancer perhaps. Why do they do it? Because, Because they're addicted, I guess, but they're addicted because they know something intellectually. But it's never become an existential reality to them. Guys, um, so many of us are like Peter. We're like smokers. We, um, we have the right answers to the pop quiz. And we can identify what we're supposed to say. And I get up here and I preach about our being in union with Christ Then we go on buying more stuff so that we can prove our value and our worth to our neighbors and our friends. I talk about how safe we are in Christ and yet criticism destroys us. I talk about the, this, the safety of the believer and the security of our standing in Christ And we can't stop ourselves from entering into all of those competitions, you know, over our kids. No, guys, I've got three daughters and they've all got small children. And I hear stories that will just, that just absolutely astonish me over birthday parties. The extremes to which parents are going these days just for birthday parties. Because if you're going to, I've got to Why can't we stop ourselves? Because we know this intellectually. 
has never become an existential reality for us. Oh, but boy, Jimmy, if, if I could just have one of these, I mean, these transfigurations, if I could just do that, man, then, I, then I'd, I'd, I'd be a real good Christian. Really? Well, Peter disagrees with you. Peter, in his old age, wrote a couple of um, epistles. And uh, in those epistles, he, in, in his second one, in Second Peter, he alludes to this event. L- l- let, me, let me read to you where he makes mention of the transfiguration. He says, For when uh, we received the honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's referring to this. You know, years, years later. Listen to what he says next. But we have something more sure. More sure than this? What could it possibly be? What could be more certain than this? And we have something more sure. The prophetic word. What is it that's more sure than that event? This book. This book whose united voice says to all of us, Listen to him. Yield to him. Obey him. Worship him. Gang, the, the, the big deliverance, the, the one with the capital D, that one has been a successfully accomplished for us. If you're a Christian, you will never perish. But those little deliverances with the, with the little D, deliverance from my fear of the crowd and its rejection, a deliverance from the hatred of being criticized, a deliverance from the hunger for people's applause, a deliverance from my need to succeed. Those deliverances happen little by little as we discover a Jesus in here who is much bigger than we ever dreamed. Moving from believing intellectually to believing existentially comes from little by little ongoing steps of yielding and submitting and obeying and worshiping the one. who was transfigured on his way to the cross. Clear? Our Father, I do pray that you will um, make yourself so abundantly beautiful to the eyes of our soul.
that you will show us with no uncertain terms the, the wonder and the majesty of the Christ that we sing about and whose birth we celebrate. Oh God, move me beyond the intellectual. Move me along with my other brothers and sisters in Christ. Move us to an existential grasp of the beauty of the crucified and risen Christ, in whose name we pray.